Hello Central, my name is Jorge Salazar. I'm one of the elders in the church and today it's my privilege to uh, share the Word of God with you. And I will start by saying that people have preferences. We all do. You know, some people enjoy the hot weather, the sun shining on their face, their skin switching colors, and others prefer a cast day gloomy, cold, and rainy. But there's nothing wrong with preferring a chocolate ice cream over vanilla, or even licorice over cotton candy, things that have to do with our taste and our comfort. But you see, when it, where it gets tricky, it's uh, when the choices are life and death. The same when it comes to our spiritual life. Which God should we follow? And maybe do we prefer to think that we are not following any God and thus making ourselves our own gods? So chapter 18 of 1 Kings will bring us to the crossroads where we have to choose which God to follow. But it will also give us great reasons why we should follow the God of the Bible. You see, first we'll learn that God has a plan that is secure, that our way causes pain and grief, that God comes and reveals Himself, that it is God who attracts our hearts, and that it is God who blesses us. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this amazing opportunity of opening your word together and studying it. I pray that you will work in our hearts, that you will turn our hearts towards you, and that you will bless us this morning or this day as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You see, this summer we have been studying a series on the prophet Elijah and Elisha, and we've learned so far that the prophet Elijah was a spokesman for God to the divided kingdom of Israel, where King Ahab and his wife Jezebel gave themselves and the nation to the worship of a false god named Baal, the ancient deity of the Canaanites. Now, Yahweh the God of the Bible who delivered them from slavery and brought them into the promised land expressly demanded exclusive worship lest they receive the curses in the covenant they made with God at Mount Sinai. But they had broken the covenant and gave, and gave themselves up to idolatry. Elijah confronts the king and he tells him that he will pray and there will be no rain or dew on the land and that brings a very harsh drought on the land for three and a half years. Now last week we read that Elijah performed a couple of miracles for a widow and her son in the middle of the worst drought they have ever experienced. Elijah goes to Baal's land, to Sidon, and even though there was no rain, God multiplied the flour and the oil for the widow. A loud proclamation that the real God doesn't need rain or anything else for that matter to provide and produce. Baal was worshipped as the god of the rain, the god who made the soil fertile. They actually believed that the land would die on the winter and then on spring Baal would resurrect it. In, in change, God demonstrates that the true God doesn't symbolically resurrect when Elijah resurrects the son of the widow. He is the one that gives life. Even to this gentle woman and her son, a God who is available to all who call on Him. And that is why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. So at the beginning of this chapter, God says to Elijah in verse 1, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And I love this command because it shows us that 
God has a plan that is secure. You see, He's not playing dice or doing things on a whim. He has a plan. He has a design. It was God who brought the famine, and it is God who will bring the rain. Now, some people would ask, well, you see, that is cruel. He likes playing with us like rats in a lab. Well, that would be true if there was no purpose, but everything that God does has a purpose. It's like saying that you're cruel because you grounded your kid, and then a few minutes later, you let him go out. Are you playing games? No, you're teaching him obedience because there is a purpose, a good purpose. The same with God. And as we'll see today, His plan is for our good since at the end of the story, God will demonstrate beyond any doubt that He is real and that He wants to bless us. Understanding that God has a plan and understanding that God is good, it should give us a great deal of comfort because that means that nothing is random. Either God is in control or He is not God because things or random would control Him. You see, that's fascinating. Think about it for a second. What kind of things did God allow your grandfather to live and to experience so that he would grow to be a young man with his character and his personality the way he is or he was so that he would meet your grandma? And then your grandma in turn had to grow in a very specific environment so that she would become the young girl that would catch your grandpa's eye and they would fall in love and they would get married and then your dad would be born. And then your mom, she was born in a totally different family with a totally different circumstances, probably in a very different place. But God had planned that one day your dad would pose his eyes on that gorgeous beautiful girl and get married so that you would be born. And it's no accident that you were born into that family, whether it's a pretty family or a broken family or a dysfunctional family, because in God's plan, that is precisely what made you who you are. So that you could listen to this sermon this morning or this day and that you would get to know the real God and understand His purposes and the purposes He has for your life so that you would be accomplished and that He would be glorified. You see, when we understand these things, we go about our lives in trust. We walk in confidence, understanding that the things that rock our boat are not meant to sink it, but to make us pay attention to what really matters, to where we have to pay attention. Elijah knew these things, and, and that is why he can confidently go and meet this king who's trying to kill him. He's been trying to find him for three and a half years. And that's why it's not chance that Elijah bumps into Obadiah on his way to meet Ahab. It's not chance that Elijah meets the widow at the end of her rope because God has a plan. You see, at the beginning of this chapter, God said He will bring rain, but they haven't repented. How does He know? Well, because He's God, because He has a plan, because He's going to demonstrate to those people and to the whole world even today that He is real, that He's never called us to believe in Him blindly, but that He is going to show Himself because He has a plan that is secure.
Now, meanwhile, in the palace, King Ahab calls his chief of staff, Obadiah, and he says to him in verse 5, And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And here I want you to see that our way causes pain and grief. You see, it's interesting to me that the writer of 1 Kings takes all the trouble of writing so much detail in this story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's hard not to see the irony of what we are being told. We know that Obadiah is faithful to God because verse 3 tells us that he feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. In fact, the name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. So, you have this pious man, the servant of Yahweh, as the chief of staff of the king, whose wife Jezebel has been murdering all the prophets of God. And all the king is concerned about is animals. He's willing to travel the country to save the animals while his wife is killing the prophets of God. Talk about priorities. You see, we have that tendency when we fall into sin, when we become rebellious against God, that instead of repenting and trying to find peace with God, we rather run in opposite directions. Like the guy who's been sober for three months and, and he takes a sip and says, ah, man, I couldn't help it. Well, I might as well just have the whole bottle. And you know, you're fighting temptation and it's tough, but you're hanging in there. And then you sleep and you simply let go. Wasn't it better to repent and go back to God? Obviously, but we never do. We want to do things our way. We think our way will get us out of the mess we're in, but it won't. We're just digging a deeper hole. Perhaps Jezebel is killing the prophets of Yahweh because she thinks that if she gets rid of the competition, then her fake god Baal will be pleased and bring back the rain. Maybe, you know, her dad was the priest of Baal. But what is Ahab's excuse? He knew the law. He knew the covenant of God. And instead of repenting, he's trying to fix his mess on his own. It's as pathetic as those fig leaves that Adam and Eve used as clothing. Again, following their own way instead of coming to God in repentance. So Ahab and Obadiah went in opposite directions and Obadiah meets the man of God. He falls on his face and recognizes that Elijah is a man of God and even makes a bold claim when Elijah tells him to go and tell Ahab that he wants to meet him. Obadiah says, listen to this, as the Lord your God lives. Wow, here's a man that knows that God is real. Here's a man that knows that God is in control, but he doesn't know that God is good. You see, he says, what if I go to Ahab and I tell him that you're here, but then the Spirit of the Lord comes and takes you somewhere that I don't know. I will be killed. Don't you know he's been trying to find you for three years? You know, why are you asking this of me? Are you trying to get me killed? I mean, we're on the same team. Haven't you heard? 
I was saving the prophets while Jezebel was killing them. I mean, if I go to Ahab and I say, Behold, Elijah is here, he will kill me. You can tell the terror in Obadiah's dialogue. Three times he says that Ahab will kill him. Hmm, what about Elijah? Shouldn't he be afraid? Listen to what he says in verse 15. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Hmm. That's the secret of Elijah's courage. He knows God is the Lord of hosts, a title that means the Lord of the armies of heaven, the sovereign God. That's why Daniel wrote that his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and no one can restrain his hand. Oh, but when we're running from God, we are so stubborn. We deceive ourselves. You know what Ahab says to Elijah when he finally meets him? Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you traveler of Israel? Really, Ahab? Are you going to try that blame-shifting trick? Man, that Ahab is something else. He's the one who created this mess. He's the one who turned the hearts of the people to the worship of Baal. He's the one who allowed the killing of all the prophets of God. He's the one that was warned that if he disobeyed, this would come upon them. Really, Ahab? You think blame shifting is going to work? Well, we should know. We do the same all the time. You know, I've heard parents complaining that God didn't give them good kids. You know, polite kids, nice, loving kids, like that other family. Well, yeah, but that other family invested in their kids, their time, and their love, and their patience, and they made sure that none of their kids would defy them and, and show contempt from a very early age. They taught their children to love God, and, to be, and they modeled to them what it means to be a responsible person, a person of integrity a person of respect. They weren't watching never-ending series on TV and bullying their kids and allowing them to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, whatever they pleased. Now nah, you can't blame God for that. He told us already what we're supposed to do in Deuteronomy 6. Well, what about that guy who says that he had bad luck with his wife? If only he was given a woman that would respect him that would honor him, that wouldn't be nagging all the time, that wouldn't call him and ask him for stuff when he's watching the game, a wife that would be available for him at the snap of his fingers and that wouldn't be so needy and so demanding. That's why his marriage is hell, right? The woman doubt has given me. Because, of course, you are the husband who initiates the conversation when it's evident that something is wrong. Because you're the husband who makes sure the emotional and physical needs of your wife are met before you snap your fingers. Because you're the husband who spends 
time with his children in a meaningful way and leads his family in love and in integrity and grace. Because you are the husband who never complains because he has to take out the garbage or he has to walk the dog or he has to go a third time to the kitchen even after asking the second time if they wanted anything else. You cannot blame God for not passing the test at school if you didn't study. Central, we need to be honest. We need to recognize when we are going astray lest we keep pushing the log into our own eye. That's why Elijah gives Ahab a reality check. Listen to verse 18, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and allowed the Baals. You see, that's why I said that our own ways causes pain and grief. And this may look differently in every given family, but in Ahab's case, it has been famine and death. Even worse, the whole nation has been alienated from God because of Him, and they keep walking in the opposite direction. Now, here's where God's mercy and His grace does amazing things. You see, He comes to us, and He reveals Himself. Elijah summons all the people of Israel, the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah that used to eat at Jezebel's table, to Mount Carmel. That's right at the border between Israel and uh, Sidon. That's Baal's land. And as they gather in this mound that oversees the, the land and the Mediterranean Sea, we read this verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. What a sad picture. The people of Israel, the 450 prophets of Baal, only one prophet of God saying, Make up your mind. Who will you follow? And the people didn't say a word. You see, this limping between two different opinions causes a peculiar reaction in God. Let me tell you how he explains it in Revelation 3.15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, with that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, the people of Israel claimed to worship the God of the Bible, but why not include Baal? Why not? Let, let, you know, let's keep our bases covered. Let's take the best of this and the best of that and the best of over there. You know, whatever suits you. They didn't respond who God is, not because they didn't know, but because people always want to follow what's more comfortable to them. The syncretism that they had been living with is disgusting to God. For the God of the Bible, there's no place for half-commitments. You can follow God and follow your own impulses. You can serve God and then serve your feminism or your activism or your political agenda because eventually, and Jesus said this, you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
That's why you hear Christians complaining about the government and complaining about this policy and complaining about that other thing that our Lord God did not ask us to complain about. Last time I checked the Bible, I couldn't find first and second complainers. In fact, what our master has done, it's exactly what he did for Elijah. He gave him a command and a promise. To Elijah, he said, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send the rain upon the earth. Same thing Jesus did for us. Believe in me, and I will give you eternal life. And the one we read at the end of the Gospels, go make disciples. Go share the gospel, and I will be with you always. But just like the people of Israel, we want to insert our own ideas into the mix, and we come up with so much cleverness. All it takes is listen to some of those Christian podcasts that sound like either left or right extremists. And then we're all drawn into it like flies to the honey. Choose, choose if the Lord is God, follow Him. So Elijah tells them, you know, we're going to prepare two sacrifices, one for Baal, one for God, but we're not going to light it. So the true God will be the one who answers with fire over the sacrifices. And all the people agreed. And then Elijah wants to ensure that there's no tricks being played here. So he actually lets the uh, prophets of Baal go first, and he actually lets them choose the bull. So they get ready, and from morning to noon they cry, Oh, Baal, answer us! And verse 26 tells us there was no voice, no one answered. What a contrast with the God of the Bible, the God of Israel who was heard at the Mount of Sinai, the God of Israel who spoke at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But Baal, there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar. They cut themselves until blood gushed out upon them. Just like all the false doctrines where it depends on you, on your sacrifices, on your good works, on your flagellation in order to gain God's favor, but not so with Christ. In fact, these people had done nothing to deserve God's favor. And yet, God sent His prophet because He was determined to send His reign. He was determined to save them. I love how Elijah mocks the, the, the prophets of Baal because it gives us a, a picture of the foolishness of trusting in others other than God. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Then at the end of verse 29, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now it's Elijah's turn, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Now, some scholars believe that the altar that Elijah repaired 
was there way before the Temple of Jerusalem was built. But lest it escapes you, notice that he took 12 stones according to the tribes of Israel. You see, the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes, they used to call themselves Israel. But God is saying here, I chose 12 tribes. The united people, my united people is the one I called Israel. So he builds the altar in the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And he sets the wood, cuts the bull in pieces, digs a trench about the altar. And then he asks the people to fill up four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood three times. Again, 12 jars of water. Now, there's some people who think the water is a symbol of the sins of Israel and the rebellion against God and His sacrifices. Other people would say, no, 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 that's just, you know, to make even more evident the power of God. Whatever the case, it is significant that it was 12 yards of water in the middle of the worst drought they have ever experienced. And it was just not a small amount of water. Listen to verse 35. The water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah didn't shout. He didn't limp around the altar. He didn't cut himself or any other clownery. He simply prayed to the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and he didn't say Jacob. He said Israel, another indictment of what they had done. And he prays, that it will be known that there is a God in Israel and that He is God, that Elijah is the servant and that everything he did was according to His word. But I love the last part, that people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Wow! How's that for a little proof, eh? Don't you love this? Before all the people of Israel, before the nation's leader, before even the prophets of Baal, God shows Himself and demonstrates without a doubt that He is who, who He's claimed to be the God Almighty. He came and revealed Himself. And did you see the response of the people? That's why I said that He attracts our hearts to Him. That's exactly what Elijah said God was doing when he prayed. That God was turning their hearts to Him. And this is very important because people were not looking for God. And yet we see God's mercy in coming after them, revealing Himself and turning their hearts to Him. Isn't that exactly what God has done for us? 
He came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. He demonstrated His deity doing miraculous things, undoubtedly miraculous, undeniable things, even presenting Himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins and rising on the third day so that we would believe that He is God and that our lives are secure in His hands when we receive what He has done for us and come to Him in repentance and faith. You see, salvation belongs to the Lord. He wants you to respond the same way the people of Israel did, submitting to Him and following Him all the days of your life. The prophets of Baal got what they had coming. They were all executed for the rebellion and their sin. And just as God announced through Elijah when He prayed, verse 35 tells us that the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, which is my last point. God blesses us. Let me encourage you with these final words. You see, the rain was a confirmation of God's forgiveness over the people. Just as Jesus' resurrection is a confirmation of God's forgiveness over all who receive Him and place their trust in Him. That is the very definition of grace. An amazing blessing that we didn't deserve and yet God chose to give it to us. So, you know, if you're not the perfect husband, if you're not the perfect wife, if you're not the perfect son, if you're not the perfect Christian, you can always recognize your sin and come to Him who have made you already perfect in Christ for the glory of His name. Follow Him and cast away all other things that compete for your heart's affections. Let me pray. Oh, Father, how beautiful it is that in spite or despite our sin, despite our rebellion, you have come to us. You have made yourself accessible, even more. You have paid the price for our sins. You sent your only Son to die on that cross where we were supposed to die. And He rose on the third day, and we know that it was a pleasing sacrifice to you and that you accept us through Christ. Father, I pray that every person who knows this truth will follow you, that we will follow you committed whole to you every day of our lives until the day that we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.